The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig, our first show for the month of June. So uh, great to have you here and as summer is uh, a couple weeks away, uh, we appreciate you spending a half hour with us this morning. Uh, as always, joined by Dan Trelaro. He's with the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Craig. Good morning. And uh, very happy to have with us today Keith White. He is with the National Council on Problem Gambling or Compulsive Gambling as well. Keith, good to have you on. How are you today? Oh, thanks, Craig. Good, have, good, good to see you guys. Uh, so let me start with you, just on kind of a national scope. I know every week there's another state that uh, greenlights, you know, legalized gambling or some form of it, whether it's sports gambling on phones or actual casino gambling. Give us an idea nationally, kind of where we're at as opposed to even six months ago, a year ago. All right, so today we're at 30 states plus D.C. who have legalized sports betting just in the past three years. It's the largest and fastest expansion of gambling in our nation's history. You know, we already had 48 states that had some form of legalized gambling, uh, but now what you're seeing is uh, states diving into the sports betting uh, pool, and at the same time, they're, they're legalizing mobile and Internet gambling. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're approving daily fantasy sports. And again, it's, 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 the, it's an unbelievable surge in access uh, and acceptability. Uh, of legalized gambling. And, and, and it's not a federal thing. It's uh, every state makes up their own rules. So there's no federal aspect to this, right? That's right. Every state and every tribe has the, has the authority to legalize a form of gambling they want in their state. They set the age limits. They set the rules and restrictions. Some states, like there in New Jersey, as Dan knows, um, have a pretty good set of, of requirements, including responsible gambling. Others, it's almost non-existent. Yeah, that, and that was my question. I know when I was gambling, you know, and I'd try to find every uh, legal means to do it. And then, of course, I'd found, you know, underground games as well. But there was a notion that some states, when they started doing, like, riverboat gambling, for example, uh, it was a bit of the wild, wild west. Is, are you seeing any of that right now? Yeah. States are desperate to, com- to compete for gambling revenue, and in a way, it's a race to the bottom. You know, we saw in the last, in the 2008 recession, and now during the um, pandemic, states are liberalizing or loosening gambling regulations in order to try and attract more money from other states. You know, so states are doing things like allowing gamblers to use credit cards or other electronic means of payment, and often it's deliberately targeted at, at neighboring gamblers in other states, you know, trying to bring gamblers across the border. And and so it's a race to the bottom in terms of loosening these regulations and liberalizing gambling access to try and get more and more money. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, back in 1997, I owned an offshore casino called Bet on Fantasy, and we were based in Costa Rica. And that was right at the time there was this big uh, movement called the Kyle Bill. Yes. And the Kyle Bills what basically scared away every credit card company from allowing you to use a credit card to send money, make deposits on uh, your on the casino account because back then, and I recognize I'm talking a quarter of you know 25 years ago, mm-hmm. the issue was that because the phone call that connected the internet connection was a domestic phone, they had control over what you did. And that's what scared all the credit card companies away from allowing you to use American Express, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, to actually fund accounts. So I'm fascinated that there are some states that are now actually allowing people to use their credit card to make deposits. That's fascinating. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, they're not putting in the kinds of protections and the kinds of research we need to determine how to best minimize the harm. So these states are going, you know, Nevada now allows you to do uh, a uh, point-of-sale debit transaction for up to $10,000 a transaction with an unlimited number of transactions per day. They deliberately, uh, you know, reduced, reduced those rules in response to the pandemic. But, you know, $10,000 a pop, a swipe, you know, for, for a, an unlimited number of swipes per day, there's no bank account in the world that can survive that amount of access to, to, to cash. Yeah, well, well, listen, you know, Nevada's taking a hit, right? New Jersey's handle is larger than uh, Nevada's. First time that's ever happened, of course. And as neighboring states uh, near Nevada, you know, start legalizing actual casino wagering, let alone just phone wagering, Nevada's taking a big hit. They are. And unfortunately, one of the ways they're trying to do, they're trying to outcompete those neighbors is by um, removing some of those restrictions. And some of those restrictions were put in place because some of these revenues are juiced by people with gambling problems, by people who can't control, uh, you know, their, their, their wagering. And it's, you know, it's, it's, going to lead to an increase, we believe, in the rate and severity of gambling problems. And many of these same states aren't putting the money into it to prevent and treat gambling problems. So, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna pay twice. Now, Dan, in New Jersey, if you have a casino or gaming license, you have to send $100,000 annually to groups like yours, like the uh, Council on Compulsive Gambling, and groups like yours have to actually fill out a form and apply for the money. Does the state also kicking any dough or is it solely from that money so we're funded in various ways you know and and keith and i work very closely together for yeah. state and national issues you know there's funding sources include funds from the state we get funding uh supposed to be getting funding from sports betting monies which we're still yet to see but that's uh, a moving process we get money from internet gambling uh casino licenses we get monies from the racing commission uh, from the lottery in kind. So we get a various, various forms of funding that are supposed to be, and I think you hit it on the head, Craig, they're supposed to be sent to the agency 800 Gambler or companies such as 800 Gambler, which provide education, treatment, and referral services. To Keith's point, you know, when we start seeing an uptick in transactions that are done over the wire, electronically, online, we know what that can do to someone who has a gambling problem. Yeah. It's that rapid reinforcement. It's that ease of access, that the, the, the loosening of restrictions is problematic for people who have a problem. Yeah, it's one of the things, uh, for full disclosure, you know, Keith was kind enough to ask me to speak at uh, this year's national uh, convention, which will be a virtual event. You know, and one of the things we're going to talk about that day, Keith, is the fact, you know, I had $75,000 in my bank account, but I had 10 casinos, each at a half million dollars or more marker-wise. So how does a guy with 75 grand in the bank walk into a casino with the ability to lose half a million dollars? That, that is the question. Uh, and, and a lot of it comes back to data. What did they know about you and when did they know it? And then how are they using that data either to make decisions that are sustainable, responsible in both your best interest and their best interest, or are they using that data to, to prey on you, to target, to market you, you know, to pursue you, to give you credit far beyond uh, your income. And that's what we're going to try and we're going to try and shine a light on. That's why it's so you know, brave of you to be able to tell your story. But there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of stories like yours. Um, and it's now not just casino credits, not just markers. As you and Dan just said, it's commercial. It's, it's consumer credit. You know, it's your, it's your ATM card, your, your debit card, ACH, 
credit cards that can all be used now for gambling, and that provides a much uh, higher risk uh, for gambling problems. Yeah, I remember the only time I ever used a credit card, you know, I had, you know, the fancy uh, American Express card, and because I had that card, American Express allowed you to take out, you know, one time per pay period. The max you could take out through an ATM machine was um, $10,000. You could do that once every pay period. Um, and it was very hard to do because, you know, ATMs don't carry that kind of cash on it. So you could only do it at a business that had the ability to give you, you know, 10 grand. Well, you know, what kind of business has 10 grand laying around, right? So, I mean, I'll never forget. Yeah, I was chasing one night and I was at a casino and I was on the phone for 45 minutes with American Express because I, there's a, I'll never forget this. There was a special like pin code for the Amex card. Well, I never used it as an ATM card, so I had no idea what my pin was. And they won't give you the pin over the phone. And I was so desperate to get this $10,000 so I could go right back to the blackjack table, you know, and hopefully win. Um, I was on the phone for 45 minutes begging them to give me the pin code. I'll never forget that night. And you wouldn't believe nowadays, if you, if you go onto a floor nowadays, the ease with which you could totally drain that account. There is a whole payments industry dedicated to making uh, betting a one-click proposition, whether you're on the floor uh, or online. And uh, they, they can find infinite numbers of ways to move that money through an ACH, get around your limits. It's, uh, it's just this side of uh, predatory, some of the practices that are in place now with electronic payments. So the, the, here's a weird question for you guys. As gambling has become you know, this huge industry and legalized, and as you said, 30 whatever, 38 states right now, I recognize I'm a numbers guy, right? So if we agree that 10% of people that gamble on a regular basis are going to become compulsive gamblers at some level, we don't take into account the fact that more and more people who may have never gambled before are now going to gamble because it's easy and legal to do. Do you think the percentage of the total gambling population that becomes compulsive or addictive, will that number grow as well or no? Well, we just did a national survey. Well, and so in uh, November 2018, we did a national survey of 28,000 gamblers. We followed it up with another survey of uh, 2,000 gamblers uh, just uh, two months ago. And what we've seen in that time is, to your point, there's still 15 to 20 percent of the American public that doesn't gamble in a given year. So when we, when we look at these national statistics, that's based on everybody in America. But when you start to exclude kids and when you start to exclude those people that don't gamble, you know, like you said, that number starts to get beyond that two percent to the two to the five, six, seven, that ten percent. And so, but what we're seeing now, even just in the last two and a half years since we've done our survey, the the participation rate is increasing. So there's more Americans now who've gambled than ever before in our nation's history. And so, even if the percentage doesn't rise, that's still more people with problems. But we believe that the rate and severity of problems is going to increase. And, you know, we think we're going to be able to show that with the data we're presenting at our conference in, in July that you're speaking at. Yeah, I think so, right. too. We'll continue on with both uh, Dan and Keith here in just one second. It's hello, my name is Craig. Saturday morning, great to have you with us. We'll continue and also wrap it up right after this on The Fan. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig, Keith White, the 
National Council, and of course, uh, Dan Trelauer is always with the New Jersey uh, Council. Dan, I know you want to add to what Keith said before the break there regarding the rising numbers of people that might not know yet that they may one one day have a problem. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I always think about the law of large numbers. You know, we're opening this door to more people, and so as you're increasing uh, potential participation and exposure to an increasing pool you're going to have a percentage of the population that develops a problem. And from a real number perspective, that will grow. And we talked about how problem gambling exists along a continuum, right? Mild, moderate, severe, whether it's full-blown, disordered, or you're starting to exhibit the signs. And let's not forget, and all three of us know this, the family members. So not only are we worried about the person with a potential uh, gambling-related harm, but how many people are now impacted in that person's life yeah. that might start to show financial distress, emotional distress, and other forms of distress? You know, I'm thinking while you guys are talking, you know, it's not a liquor store's job to stop an alcoholic from coming in and buying a bottle of booze. But the difference between a gambling addict and an alcoholic is that the folks that, you know, that run the casinos, they have the data in front of them. They run algorithms behind the scenes 24-7. They, they know that there are signs that you have a problem, the manner in which you wager, the, uh, the frequency of refunding an account, how you wager, how you chase, all those things where they, they're well aware of who amongst their customers rings a bell as a potential problem. You know, the liquor store owner has no idea if, uh, if an alcoholic comes in sober and buys a bottle of vodka and then go drinks it on a street corner. But the casino operator does know, and I'm wondering, and I'm not sure the answer to this, because as everyone knows, I'm in, I'm in favor of legalized gambling. I'm a mm-hmm. proponent of it. I'm not, you know, because I have a problem doesn't mean the world has a problem. Right. But I do wonder what level of responsibility they have that when Craig Carton in their system rings a bell that he's got a potential problem, how do they react to that? Well, we're seeing some really interesting experiments over in the U.K. and in in Scandinavia, where operators now in the U.K. are required to use every bit of data they collect on a customer also for responsible gambling. And we know our operators, just like the ones in the U.K., collect tetrabytes, enormous amounts of data on every aspect of your behavior. They run credit reports. They scan your social graph. You know, and all this is in service of marketing, advertising, loyalty, but they fail often to use it. They turn a blind eye towards any signs of a gambling problem. So what's good for the goose in the UK is going to be good for the gander here in the U.S. And advocates like us and like Dan uh, are going to be pushing casinos to use all that data they collect to try and spot markers of harm. Right, but that'll still be a state-by-state decision, right? So if New Jersey decides, hey, listen, we want to be proactive. If the Fanduels of the world want to be proactive because they recognize that there are people that are wagering on their system, have a problem, and they can maybe prevent a a person or save a person before he really gets in harm's way, that's up to the individual operators. Unless the state came in and said, okay, now it's time to talk about doing the right thing, correct? Correct. Correct. Yes. And as advocates, we're going to be pushing them to do that. We'll push them to do it voluntarily, and then we'll also use our, our means to go to the legislature, go to the governor, go to the regulators, and, re- and, and ask them to require. Yeah, and I, to be fair, I struggle with it. Like I said, I'm not sure if it's their responsibility to do it, but when they have the data that enables them to do it, I don't think it hurts their bottom line to do it. I really don't. 
Yeah, it's the promise of responsible gambling. Responsible gambling means more than just waiting until you have a problem and then offering you a brochure. Responsible gambling means you know taking some affirmative actions at the outset to minimize the problem because your lifetime value to them is only lifetime value if you keep gambling. You know, if, if you flame out like you did and like Dan did and like many other people do, they've lost your lifetime value. So if they want to keep a long-term sustainable customer, and there's a ton of data from Europe and the U.K. that customers who do get a responsible gambling intervention will stay with that operator longer. So it is in their economic best interest right. as well as their ethical interest. Yeah, that's fair. Good responsible game. I mean, I think I live that. I, you know, the, the hosts, et cetera, and the uh, executive teams of casinos that I got to know, I was more loyal to, for sure. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I also, you know, it's funny. You know, when I was in the throes of, of gambling as much as I was, I would have done everything in my power to continue to gamble. I wouldn't have accepted yeah. someone, you know, <laughs> shutting me down. It would have been well, a you said, you said a host at, at times that said, hey, Craig, take a break. Or, yep, you know, yep. But it would have been a real problem for me if they were like, we're not allowing you. (laughs) And that only happened to me once. I was at a casino in the Poconos. I was up a couple hundred thousand dollars. It was like four o'clock in the morning. And I went to make, I was was betting the other table limit at this one particular place. And no no joke, four in the morning, I'm up uh, $225,000. And I go to make my next bet. And the uh, pit boss says, I'm sorry, Craig, can't accept that. I go, what are you talking about? I've been here for six hours. I, you know, there's nothing strange about this bet. I just made the same bet two seconds ago. And then they brought down some VP and they said, listen, you're done for the night. And I go, done? <laughs> what do you mean I'm done? Because I'm winning? Like You can't accept the guy winning at this place? Whatever it was. And we went back and forth for a half hour. But they would not allow me to make another bet that night. And it's wow. the only time in my lifetime that that ever took place. And I'm thinking about it because there's another casino where I, on purpose, didn't pay the marker off the day it was due. I, I did it on purpose. I didn't want to. So we're negotiating when I'm going to pay it, how I'm going to pay it, et cetera. And I paid it off, let's say, 30 days after it was due. And the day I paid it off, they reinstated my marker in full. Now, hmm. I didn't have the money in the bank to warrant the marker to begin with. (laughs) And I just delayed paying you back by 30 days. (laughs) If anything, you should cut me off or tell me to bring cash next time I want to gamble. That's right. Casinos are a weird business when it comes to uh, credit. (laughs) And it's a a zero interest loan, essentially. And they would, you know, there's another casino I'll never forget. You know, I was a, a net winner at this particular place, but this one moment in time, you know, I was down about 100 grand. So I, the marker had you know, passed. I owed them the money. And I said to him, listen, I'm going to come in tomorrow morning at 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, before I come in, I want to make sure that we have, we have a deal. And the deal I made with them was I was going to bring cash in to gamble with that if I won, I didn't have to pay the marker off in full. Mm-hmm. They would allow me to take winnings out. So the deal we struck was that if I won this particular visit, of my wins would go to them. 50% of my wins I could keep and walk out the door with cash. And I was like, I'm going back to that place. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You know what's interesting? When we talk about responsible gambling, I think about a quote from a consulting company in Jamaica. And they talked about, you know, responsible gambling is, is grounded in science and driven by collaboration. And I think about that a lot because 
Craig, uh, Craig, to your point, when you say that the, the operators have the technology, the algorithm, that's grounded in science. We can, we can quickly and accurately see real-time information on th- th- thousands of elements of, of player data. And then it's the driven, in collab- driven by collaboration piece, at times that seems to be lacking. Right? We want to work with the stakeholders, the entities. We want to address uh, problem gambling as a public health issue. We want to work with behavioral health centers, drug and alcohol. You know, anyone could be walking around with a co-occurring mental health condition, right? We just right. recognize yep. May as Mental Health Awareness Month. And, and it's that collaboration piece. And, and it's, it's opportunities like this to draw attention and awareness where there's been such stigma for so long that a person with a gambling problem is just weak or greedy. And that's the mountain that we continue to try to overcome on state funds without even having a dollar of federal. Yeah, and we know the money's there. I mean, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars marketing. And my only issue with it, you know, is is some of the marketing. You know, they, they're all doing this one particular type of a marketing campaign, which does annoy me. And it's where they'll say, hey, there's a basketball game tonight. Yeah. If either team makes a shot tonight, you know, you're going to win $100 on a $1 bet. Yep, can't can't lose. Right, but can't the reality lose. is that you're not winning $100. You're winning $10, $10 bets to, to make. And they're basically, they're, it's like, they're priming you to, to gamble more is what they're doing. Yeah, some of this – and this marketing in many states is unconstrained. Uh, you know, there, there's not a real clear distinction on what New Jersey permits but what New York prohibits. Um, you know, this just goes out on the Internet, and it's really hard um, to, to kind of police these ads because they're there and gone in a second. You know, they're, they're, they're broadcast, uh, and it's, it's very difficult for us as advocates to play catch up and say, hey, look, this is not appropriate. This is too much. You know, this, these ads are going to kids, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's really, it's really difficult. What is, uh, just out of curiosity, Keith, what's your take on the concept, which is not being done anywhere yet, but I do think it's the future for major metropolitans like in New York, like in Chicago, LA. You know, New York, uh, New York City, the, the, you know, proper, does not have a casino and it was actually just shot down again for another couple of years. Uh, but there are, you know, there are casinos. You know, Yonkers, New York, which is about 25 minutes outside the city, has the Raceway Empire Raceway. They're about to get table games. I believe Aqueduct, uh, you know, the same deal. Um, there's a, a, a concept that I've been aware of for a while that I think is probably plausible in the next three to five years, which is membership-based casinos. Yes. So the cities don't have what they view as you know, the scourge of society, you know, loitering and hanging out. And it's based on your net worth. So you're taking high-end net worth folks on a membership-only based scenario, and you start creating kind of mini casinos for high-end net worth people that the state taxes. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's kind of the London model. So that was that was the way casinos were in the UK for the longest amount of time. They were membership only clubs. Um, you know, there wasn't as many limits. You know, it wasn't as sophisticated as they they checked your net worth. But you had to become a member. You had to wait 24 hours for that membership to activate. And it was only high stakes. It was only table games, no slots. You know, really elegant. You know, tiny casinos in places like the Ritz. Um, turns out that while that you can sustain that market at a high level in some places, even in London. Um, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the industry. It wasn't enough for the consumers. And so they, they uh, got rid of those rules. I mean, New York, maybe you could do it. Maybe you could do it in Tokyo, Dubai. But 
economically, you know, a lot of your gamblers are coming or middle class, you know, low class, right. you know, lower class folks. And so I think it's gonna, it would be hard. It would be very hard. But yeah, New York is a price. Chicago has an RFP now for a casino company. You know, they are, they are actively courting it. And it's weird. You know, we're in, a, we're in a situation now where states and jurisdictions are actively courting casinos to come to town. Yeah, I hear you. Well, listen, Keith, I appreciate your time today. I look forward to uh, the uh, the uh, symposium and the event in July. I'm looking forward to speaking at it and being a part of it and moving forward working with uh, your organization, uh, as you know. And, uh, Dan, last thing for you. And I guess, Keith, you as well here. Um, the biggest concern now, I assume, for both you guys is our kids and the phone and gaming and that leading to gambling, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we see. We see that quite a bit. And, and actually, I've worked with Keith and, and other uh, affiliates around the state to kind of talk about the convergence, right? We see the, the gambling mechanics enter their way into the video games that our, that our kids play. And they could be of varying ages. You know, they could be apps on phones where a, a five-year-old, you know, you get this option to spin a wheel to win a, a random prize. Uh, you, you see it throughout uh, technology, the, the mechanics of gambling embedded to kind of win a prize or participate in something. And it's showing that person at an early age that this is something that's really harmless if they're not experiencing the negative side effects. And you just kind of plant those seeds in a young person's developing brain early on. So later on, when they recognize it, when they turn 18 or 21 or older, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was harmless. What's the harm in that? So we see this convergence and we see these mechanics entering everyday gaming uh, apps, uh, technology across the board. Here, well, guys, I appreciate the time as always. Uh, we'll stay in touch, and we'll do this again soon. Thank you so much for joining me. Awesome, thanks, Craig. See you on the twenty-first. Yep, coming up in July. That's the National Council on Compulsive Gambling. I'm happy to speak at that, and of course, always working with Dan Chalaro with the New Jersey Council. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Evan Roberts is next, and then Monday at two o'clock. Evan and I back together again with the crew at two o'clock. Be well, stay well, and thank you so much.